remember a, a few dad jokes, which I won't tell tonight. Uh, I only remember a few. I forget most of them. And one of them would actually probably uh, be a good introduction to our thoughts tonight, but I'll, I'll spare my children the embarrassment of me trying to get through one. But I will start off with perhaps a little bit of a strange illustration, and that is somewhere along the road I heard that one way of trapping a monkey in places where monkeys are a problem is you put something inside of a, a cage or a box that has a hole just big enough for the monkey's arm to go through. But what the monkey wants is too big to come back through the hole. And monkeys are very hesitant to let go of what they have gotten because they want it so much. They're enamored by it. And so the monkey reaches in the trap, picks up whatever is there, and then can't get its hand back out through the hole because it's holding something it won't give up. Usually, our adage would be, you know, hang on to what you have. You know, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush, right? And yet, tonight, we're going to look at a passage where, in God's wisdom, the way God looks at it, he would want us to give up what we have right now for a prospect that we can't even imagine, let alone have seen. I'd like us to go to Hebrews 12, the passage that Pastor tempted me with. Actually, he called me while I was at camp. That's a dangerous thing because I'm, I'm on a sugar high and have had way too much coffee and sitting in the sun. And... Uh, he said, I've got this verse, but I don't know. It's, um, it's in a difficult passage to try to, to deal with, so maybe you don't want to do it. So I said, well, tell me what it is. And he, he said it's uh, from Hebrews 12. And when I read the verse, the verse is, I thought, well, I may not get it right, but I, I really want to try. Um, so Hebrews 12, and we didn't have a scripture reading uh, this morning on this passage, so I'll have to read a little bit longer passage tonight uh, to give us context for what we're going to be talking about. But we do have um, two verses at the end of the chapter we want to consider this evening on the grace of God. But we need to go back, uh, really, at least to verse 12. We could probably go back to the beginning of the chapter to catch the beginnings of the thoughts. But if we start in verse 12, I think it gives us enough um, foundation work to make it through to the end. If you have it in your Bibles, uh, follow along as I read. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet. Let that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Let there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, 
though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the world should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Of course, we're thinking of Mount Sinai and the giving of the law when God came down. Verse 22 goes on. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he that hath promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake, not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. We're going to consider that last pair of verses tonight, whereby we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Grace to serve God acceptably. When we consider what it is that we've been asked to do as human beings, we might think like Peter, sure, I can do it and grab our sword and prove ourselves. We can do this. Just tell us what to do. We've got it. And that self centered thinking, if we, we think we can do it, we'll find that we really fail because no generation ever before us was ever able to continue on perfectly in the task or the path that God has given. And the pressure of this world, the things that we see, the weight of the present, the here and now, overwhelms our sensitivities because none of us are naturally designed to handle the differences between the temporal versus the eternal. Being fallen creatures 
what we have is what we've got. So live for now. Live for what we have. And yet, we're told over and over in Scripture, and in this case here by the writer of the Hebrews, to consider the things that are eternal over the temporal. To be willing to forsake what we have now in order to move into the eternal for God. But that it requires a certain measure of grace. Otherwise, we fail. Well, how do we get to this point in our text? If you remember back through the book of Hebrews, you know the first 10 chapters or so are really full of comparisons between what we have on earth, earthly tabernacles, earthly priests, earthly sacrifices, earthly activities, compared to a heavenly priest, a heavenly king, a heavenly prophet, that perfect heavenly lamb, which makes that sacrifice once and for all. The comparison of the picture to the actual Christ himself. And then we get into chapter 11, and we have that wonderful hall of fame of faith. And we walked through all of this a couple of years back. We took a night, every Sunday night, and talked about a different section, a different illustration of what it meant uh, to those in the Bible to have these earthly forms and yet live beyond those earthly forms to the heavenly reality. And even though in this life they never saw the fulfillment or the culmination of the pictures, they were faithful in living for that eternal. And that wonderful testimony that we have, that cloud of witnesses, which we have in our library to read and to gain confidence. Well, they did it. How? How did they do it? Which brings us into chapter 12. And the writer challenges us with the ultimate picture of the Lord Jesus, who endured things in this life as a man as a human being, living a temporal life here, being bound by time, the constraints of humanity, the limitations of the physical, was still faithful to his calling and to his father to perform his father's will, even though the whole world actually stood in contradiction to him. And so having our gaze fixed on him our example is certainly secured. And then we get into verses 4 through 11 of chapter 12, and there's a little bit of a chiding. It's a prodding that we have, a poking, to live a disciplined life. Those present Christians to the writer of Hebrews had not lived for the Lord unto death yet, like the great cloud of witnesses. You haven't served unto death. Don't get lazy. Stay disciplined. Stay focused. And that brings us up to where we began our reading tonight, which was as we have this focused faith, we want to avoid failing the grace of God. You noticed that, that we had that 
one phrase. That could actually have been the verse that pastor gave me, but he didn't. He gave me the end of the chapter, but we have that other reference. Don't do these things lest you fail of the grace of God. There are some markers for genuine, a genuine faith in God, and that is peace with men and a holy life, and purity in life. But there are things that keep us back from that. And that's why we had to start here, because we don't have God's grace working in us if we're prone to a lifestyle that's really emulated by Esau. A life that has bitterness in it. A life that's prone to fleshliness. In our verses, it was called fornication. But living lustful lives. Uh, a life of profanity. Being a profane person. We might think that that means that we're sailors or something. But that's not what it's talking about. The idea of being a profane person is simply being a person that has a worldly mind. A mindset that fails to reach up into higher heavenly thoughts. And that was really what we see in Esau. He could not see the value of his birthright when he was hungry. All he could see was the food. All he could see was what makes me feel happy right now. This is really the world in which we are living today. In a land filled with plenty, with overabundance. How many people are enslaved, chained down by addictions? The inability to say no to one's self. Blinded by self-consumption, you see. The inability to sacrifice, even for ministry, because we want something for what we're living for right now. I want this dream that I have, my, my plan for life in front of me. This is a sign of Esau, the inability to see the eternal because we're blinded by the realities of the temporal nature of life. And so we need to make sure that we avoid losing focus in our faith, becoming really like Esau, but we're looking forward to Sinai, I mean to Zion, not Sinai. In this life, we live under the, the governorship of law, of human law. We even sang it in our patriotic song tonight, Thy Liberty and Law. One of the markers of America has always been we've been a rule of law, although anymore. We might struggle to see the realities of that as we have corruption in government at all levels, but what has always been one of the better markers of our republic has been that everybody is held accountable to the checks and balances in our laws and that we put our self-interests to the side while we exercise our rule of law so that we have um, justice for all. Although that could be uh, room, for, there can be room for debate in the realities of history. But the point that I'm trying to make is that 
to the Hebrew mind, looking back to Moses, they see all of these constraints. Thou shalt not. You must do this. And on this day, you do this. And you cleanse yourself to be appropriately ready for this. And if you fall into this problem, this is how you solve that problem. And so on and so forth. The system of sacrifices and of all of the laws, which nobody could keep very dissatisfying. All of that is in the past and we're looking into now what is called the new covenant with the new mediator, the Lord Jesus, who provides all of the necessity of the new covenant with his shed blood, his atonement, which is a, a wonderful thing. Uh, in Sunday school, we talked about it in Senior Saints, but the idea of a covering is a wonderful Old Testament descriptor for many things that God means. And this morning it was based on being covered with God's wings, his feathers being um, overshadowing us and being covered with his wings. But that covering is just a symbol of God's total care and watch, watching over those that he loves. But the greatest manifestation of that is the covering of the blood on the mercy seat, which in itself was covering the law, which was inside the box of the ark. The two tablets of stone, which were the Ten Commandments, as God gave them to Moses, preserved in that box, meaning there was a law, there was a righteous standard on which our faith was founded, our standing with God was predicated. But the mercy seat covered it because we could never fulfill what was in the law. And what allowed the mercy seat to shield the judge from seeing our failures was the sprinkled blood on top of the mercy seat. And that's what Christ did for us when he entered into the holiest of holies and sprinkled his perfect blood. He covered, he atoned, it's the word, for our sins. And so our failures to come up to his righteousness are now covered by God's grace. So that brings us then to the final paragraph of Hebrews 12, which is where our verses come from. And we start off this final paragraph with a warning. In the past, those that had earthly prophets and even the Lord Jesus himself speaking, they refused to listen to the earthly words. And they're paying a horrible price for failure to listen. But when you hear the voice from heaven, don't fail to listen. Because even that earthly voice shook the mountain and shook cities and shook hearts and shook fear into the listeners. So much so that they said, stop it. We don't want it anymore. Leave us alone. Leave us in peace. He said, but this voice is going to come back. It's not just going to shake the earth. It's going to shake heaven and earth. Probably a reference to Haggai, Haggai 2.6, which talks about the, the Lord shaking everything in his final justice and judgment. 
and this voice is going to shake heaven and earth and everything that doesn't matter, everything that is simply ephemeral, temporal, is going to crumble into dust and vanish away. But there are things that when God speaks in his shaking voice will not shake and will not crumble, but will remain. And if we listen to that voice and obey that voice, that will be what we have for our future, that which remains. Now, because we have listened to that which is eternal, that's what brings us then to verse 28. Whereby we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, what could not be shaken into dust and thrown away, discarded as rubble. Since we have this kingdom, this eternal kingdom, this kingdom that is ruled by an eternal king, the God of heaven, and the mediator of the new covenant, seeing we have this kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Okay, so we understand the difference between a heavenly kingdom and an earthly kingdom. But how can we accept the future when we have a present? How can we say no to what's behind the door that's right in front of us when we're promised another door if we'll just wait? Wait on God. That can only be the grace of God. This sustaining, maintaining grace of God. Because left to ourselves or apart from the grace of God, there is no way that we could say yes to God and no to what we see around us, you see. It would be almost impossible for us to conceive of giving up this for something we haven't seen. And yet, the testimony of God's grace in our hearts must be, I know what I was before Jesus saved me. I know what I am in Christ and I know what he's promised. And the realities of being what we are by grace is one place that we need to go to remind ourselves that what we have in this life is nothing compared to what we have in Christ. We're sustained through trials because of this grace. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. A little bit further explanation. We can live this life successfully because of the grace of God. That grace which reminds us of what we've been saved from and saved for. It is sufficient to endure hardnesses. And pastors preached about this in, in these other places just bringing these things together in our context tonight. And then Paul would tell Timothy that he's thankful to be brought into the ministry 
because of what he was and also his proneness to live in the law versus grace. But it's in the next couple of verses, it's the grace of God that has been good to him that allows him to be in the ministry. And so he's thankful. One of the ways that we have grace to help us serve in time of need is to have not only that remembrance of what we have in Christ and salvation, but also the ability to be thankful to him. To have that sense of thanks in everything give thanks. In all of our earthly trials to still be thankful to him. Based on his character. Based on who he is. And so we have this grace. And this grace allows us to hear God's truth. Do you realize that there are more Bibles printed in the world today than have ever been available to mankind? And yet, it seems like Christianity is filling a smaller and smaller sliver of the demographic pie, right? How many people have heard John 3.16 and yet to them it's just you know, something to put on a religious person's, you know, Facebook page as a meme. It doesn't have any reality. How many people know about God, or maybe even the God of the Bible, or as has been discussed recently in a message, that there is a historical Jesus, and, and who can disprove it? Nobody. Everybody agrees that he really did live. But how do you believe him? Well, it's grace. I love what John Newton said. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first received. He needed God's grace to hear God's voice. It's an act of grace by God himself that he reveals himself to man, but that he allows mankind to hear. So it's God's grace that allows us to hear that voice which is going to shake all things. It's God's grace that gives us the heart to receive, to accept what we hear. I can hear God and reject it. I can hear him say, I'm calling you. And we can say, no, I'm not interested. I have my own plans. I have my own way. I'm not interested in hearing from you. We're rejecting the truth. And it's God's grace that gives us discernment to persevere through trial. To have an eternal perspective. It's God's grace that allows you to see what is really valuable and to be discerning as opposed to what is just futile and only worth a cheap payment for today. What is real? God's grace gives us discernment. And that discernment is what helps us understand what is acceptable to the Lord. That's the same word that we find in Romans 12 too, that we may discern what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That idea of discerning, judging, approving, seeing differences so that we value. <coughs> How can we value what is well-pleasing to God? The God of heaven 
the God of eternity, values things that match his character, that values heavenly things, that value eternal things. It's his grace that allows us to do that <coughs> with reverence and fear, that worshipful respect that defers our opinions to his opinion, that subjugates our will to his will, that values his goals over our goals. So we have that reverence and fear. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. He will put everything through the crucible of his judgment. That which is eternal, that which is gold, will be refined and come with, him, with us into eternity. That which is cheap, temporal, will be burned up, will not enter into eternity. But his righteous judgment will make the final decision. And we have to have that in the forefront of our mind. How do we serve God with acceptability? How do we serve him reverently and with godly fear? Knowing who he is. Knowing what he values. And accepting his grace in our life to change our appetites to change the way we hear, to change what we value, to give us discernment to know where to place our priorities and to focus our activity on a straight path, to avoid the errors of Esau in cheapening our lives to that which is profane, living for now and not living for eternity. Grace to serve God acceptably, whereby we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word again, to fellowship together tonight. Lord, we joy in the work of Christ on our behalf. We enjoyed the fellowship this morning as we gathered around the table and we remembered the, the broken body and the shed blood. We thank you for the eternal hope that we have, the inheritance at your table. And yet, Lord, oftentimes we sell our lives cheap by chasing after the things of this world instead of looking above. Help us, Lord, to realize that what is offered in this life is only for this life, but what you offer is for eternity. Help us to accept your offer and deny the others. We thank you for your grace to say no and for your grace to accept what you have given with a full embrace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.